0: you have a bible now would be the best time to turn to the book of second samuel today we're looking at chapter 15 and i know some of you are saying why don't you preach on christmas i will on christmas day and i will on christmas eve but actually david is quite connected to the christmas narrative and you'll see that even in this chapter so I decided to continue in Second Samuel. It's a rather lengthy reading, all of chapter 15, as we see the account of the coup d'etat regarding Absalom, the son of David. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in 2 Samuel chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom will call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See Your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him, at jerusalem arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from absalom go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword and the king's servant said to the king behold your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides so the king went out and all his household after him and he And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all the servants passed by him, and all the Kerithites, and all the Pelothites, and all uh, the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Itai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, "'Wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be.' And David said to Ittai, "'Go then, pass on.' So Ittai, the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and the people pressed on toward the wilderness.' And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came with him and all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God, back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, As I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that from this chapter written centuries ago, we might hear you speak to us today. And we do pray that you would by your spirit take the word and work in our souls, work in the depths of our being to change us more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we know that we have met with you today and that you have spoken to us and that we are ready to carry out what you say as we leave here today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the saddest chapters in the Bible is this chapter of the rebellion of Absalom. Absalom, who was the son of David. Uh, in the 16th century, an Italian by the name of Niccolo Machiavelli wrote The Prince. It's a cynical manual about gaining political power through everything from diplomatic conceits to violent insurrection. Maybe Machiavelli got a few ideas from Absalom. Certainly, Absalom is a master At political scheming and Absalom ensures he looks like the king in waiting and so let's break this chapter down as we have it before us into three particular uh, headline topics first we have the rebellion of Absalom in the first 12 verses then we have the exile of David in verses 13 to 37 and then we have David's departure from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives, and the passion of Christ. And so let's give our attention now as God speaks to us. Although, uh, having received a full pardon and having his freedom restored, Absalom sets about with all of his heart to undermine David and to usurp or take the throne. He begins by riding in a chariot drawn by horses and with an escort of 50 men. Sort of like a rap star in an Escalade with his entourage. That's exactly what it's like. This is Hollywood, baby. This is the whole show. This is Vegas showmanship. This guy is out to take the throne. And he's working it, working it, and working it. You know, it's like, it's like meeting a politician, shaking his hand, and wiping your hand off your coat afterwards. He's greasy. He's full of it. He's just full of himself. He's a narcissist. There's a fine line between a great leader and a narcissist. And Absalom is an absolute narcissist. You know, we saw in the last chapter where he had his hair cut. He had beautiful mane of hair. And he would have his hair cut, and they would weigh it once a year. And so this guy is on the cover of every magazine. He's online, as it were, on every important website as the heir apparent. Um, I won't say anything about Megan and what's his name? Yeah, Harry. You said that, I didn't write. And so in keeping... Absalom is a huge deal. He is a big deal. He sort of reminds me of what my dad said about me when I was 16, 17 years old, and I let my hair grow out really long, because that's what everybody did, except for football. I had to cut it for football, but I had it long. He said, I know what you're about. He said, you just like to ride around in your car with the window down, letting that long hair blow in the wind, throwing your money out the window. That was my daddy's estimation of me. At sixteen, several years later, he wept at my ordination into the ministry. I don't think there was anyone who was more surprised at that than my father. But here we have Absalom, a man with all the potential in the world, a man who's very gifted, very bright, very shifty, very manipulative. He had a lot of hair, and he had a the big head, the dreaded big head. And uh, so he rides around in a chariot, which the word of God has already told us that uh, uh, Samuel said this, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of chariots. Needless to say, this is not a compliment when Samuel is protesting Israel's desire Uh, for a king. But Absalom's most subversive activities involved interfering with the justice system in Israel. Here he is again, the politician who sees people coming. So he positions himself at the gates of the city. Why? Because that's where justice was served and dispensed was at the gates of the cities. And often the elders of the tribes would gather there, and when somebody had a legal dispute, they would come and receive counsel or help, and then ultimately, if it could not be resolved at the gates, they would go and see David himself on the throne, and the king would resolve the disputes. So here is Absalom cutting off, everybody seeking justice, attempting to get to David, Basically, communicating to people, David's not doing his job. He's past his prime. Look at him. All he does is sit in the kingdom in his comfort, and here I am out among the people. I am a man of the people, and I care for you, and I care about your problems. You know, you can see him on the campaign trails. He's got his sleeves rolled up of his really nice light blue starch shirt. He has on a pair of blue jeans on that he hasn't worn in a hundred years. And he's sitting on the edge of the fence talking to the farmer like he cares. That's who Absalom is. He's a politician first and foremost. And he's very good at it. He knows how to get the hearts of Israel after him or for him. And he's working it. And so he would tell often that the king didn't have time to hear their case, and he would ask them what tribe they were from, in particular to select the ones that were not from Judah, David's tribe. And so he's working the angles in every way, and he ingratiated himself with people by not allowing them to bow before him and show honor at the presence of the king's son. He would grab them and pull them up and embrace them. He's a man of the people, but he's a fake. He is a fake and a manipulator. And the text is going to go to great lengths to make that clear to us just in the next few verses. And so uh, Absalom wanted to appear to be the people's man, not some aloof, royal, privileged, spoiled brat and so he would go out early in the morning and he would intercept these people seeking justice and he would ingratiate himself to them in every way. And so everybody knew who he was. All the women wanted to be with him and all the men wanted to be him, that is in Israel at the time. And he was rising quickly in popularity. Uh, he had gone to great lengths to appear. To appear important in people's eyes with the chariot and the 50 men running ahead of him but because of that he now was growing in popularity before a king who had lost a lot of his mojo I can't think of a better word because of his sinfulness with Bathsheba and and Nathan the prophet's rebuke David was not himself now we're going to see later on a bit of a resurrection for David, but at this point, he doesn't get it. He doesn't even see that Absalom's request to go to Hebron, which is often, or Hebron, which is often the place where great things happened during the reign of David and Saul and etc. cetera. It was a notable place, a place where someone would announce that they're the new king of Israel. And so Absalom approaches him in his subtle way, and wants to go to Hebron, the traditional center of Judean state, where David was first crowned king, and he wanted to be acclaimed king there. Despite his pardon from crimes, however, it appears Absalom still had to ask David for permission to journey to Hebron, and David, in his funk and fog, said, Go, it's all right, to fulfill the vow he had made. Now, David is totally unsuspecting of his son, and he even gives him the blessing to go to Hebron. The decision, again, shows that unlike what the woman of Tekoa said in the chapter before about him being such a wise man, he's totally unaware of what's going on in his kingdom. He is detached. He is not uh, involved and engaged in being king of Israel. And so Absalom secretly arranges for supporters to come to Hebron. In order to throw off suspicion, he brings along 200 men from the capital who didn't know they were going to be his supporters and were not privy to his plans. Absalom, however, had covertly arranged an enthronement ceremony complete with offering sacrifices and David's top counselor, Ahithophel who had been to David a good friend a solid guy to talk to about counsel and wisdom this is the stake in the heart as far as David is concerned when he finds out that Ahithophel has gone with Absalom. Absalom apparently conned him and won him over and uh, the 200 Jerusalem uh, innocents would find themselves caught up in the sedition and likely be forced to participate. And so we see what has happened. Absalom is working the plan. He waited four years for this. He waited two years to kill Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. He's waiting four years after being pardoned by David to do this. I looked up and tried to figure out how old everybody is here. And my assumption is David is 70 years old or thereabout. Absalom is probably 30 to 40 years old that's how old he is prime of life as a man I mean he's he's in his prime and he's ready to make his move for his career and change everything and so David now gets wind the word of Absalom's coup finally reaches his ears and he finally takes some action (laughs) from his perpetual passivity since his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite we now begin to see flashes of the old self of David. David decides to flee Jerusalem out of concern not only for his own safety, but also for the safety of all in that city. In a decision that will come back to haunt him, David leaves 10 concubines to take care of his palace. This may show David's hope that he shall return one day, but it also facilitates the fulfillment a part of Nathan's ominous prophetic word that Absalom will take his father's concubines, which is coming up. I'll give you a little forecast. <laughs> this is a mess, isn't it? What a mess. His son, his own flesh and blood, betraying, pulling off this coup because of his father. How he must have hated his father and resented him for uh who he was and what he did throughout the story of david's departure we see tremendous loyalty being expressed to david which contrasts clearly with the betrayal of his son absalom um, first his ex- his uh, officials expressed total commitment to david in verse 15 then ittai the Giddite, uh, commits to follow David to death if necessary. Furthermore, the whole countryside of people wept as David's departure. Furthermore, we see that uh, the loyalty was isolated, mostly in Jerusalem, and perhaps the report of the people's lowly uh, loyalty to Absalom was overstated. It usually is in a coup. Either way, in an unprecedented move, the king abandons his capital city, but Itai was a Philistine. And the reason why David is so shocked about this guy is because he'd only shown up like yesterday, but apparently he had been converted. He was a loyalist to the king. And I believe that God in his providence and in answer to prayer had all of these people David's going to run into in this chapter and the next As tokens of his comfort to David, that he is with him. Even though Absalom has betrayed him, even though Absalom has completed the coup, God has not left David. He's still with him. And through the encouragement of people like this, I know that times in my life where things have happened that were less than positive in my life, sort of like just being waylaid either by gossip or rebellion or what have you, that God always seems to send somebody along, unexpected, to give you a word of encouragement. Um, That is wonderful, and this happens uh, at this point for David. So they leave and they are moving toward the wilderness of the Negev, and evidently the priests accompany the king and bring the Ark of the Covenant along with him. Which one would think David would go, yeah, let me have the Ark. I remember dancing before the Ark, and we need a token of God's presence. We need something here because we're at the bottom. But he sends them back to Jerusalem with the Ark, and if you, know, if you remember David's relationship with the Ark, He was thrilled to death when it came into the city because it represented the presence of God with his people. But David likely uh, had difficulty in sending away the ark, but he shows that he did not regard the ark as some sort of token that ensures success as Israel did years ago with the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4 with devastating consequences. Despite David's sinful past, despite his present weakness as a king and his power was gone. As did Israel years ago, David, uh, David's faith in Yahweh was not abated. David does not attempt to manipulate, at this point, God through the use of the ark. Instead, in an astounding confession of faith, David puts himself and his future in God's hands when he says the following. And look at verses 15-15. Chapter 15, 25 to 26. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready to let him do whatever seems good to him. Now that sounds like resignation, doesn't it? It sounds like submission. You ever get to that point with something where you say, Okay, I'm done, <laughs> I'm prayed out. I have done all I know to do to make this situation work. And here I stand today, and whatever God's going to do, do it. But his actions prove that this was not resignation, but rather submission to the Lord. And then he begins to plan, and the planning shows he's not just passively resigned, but submitting and taking action. So this is a good thing in David's life. This is the old David coming back. This is David sort of rediscovering faith. He's resigned to God's will. He would rather have access to the ark and worship in God's sanctuary, but he leaves all of that in God's hands. He trusts his future to God. He therefore sends the priest and their sons back to Jerusalem with the ark, and he hopes to hear from them and informs them that he will wait await their communications at the ford in the wilderness probably some well-known location where people crossed the Jordan River but one cannot help but feel as David climbs the Mount of Olives as his uh its tears as his chickens come home to roost how far David had fallen from being the ideal monarch Uh, with God on his side, victoriously extending his influence and territory to being a refugee on the run from his own son. He has hit rock bottom, but at this low point, David will express his full trust in God and his submission to God's will. When David is told that his top advisor, Ahithophel, had defected to Absalom's side, David prays, sort of an imprecatory psalm, he prays that God would prevent Ahithophel from properly counseling Absalom. In a remarkable answer to prayer, almost immediately after praying, David comes upon one of his other advisors, Hushai, the Archite, a clan from Benjamin, that's Saul's tribe, at a place where people used to worship God, in Hushai. David is given the opportunity to thwart Ahithophel's role in Absalom's court. So see, God is working. Even as he's fleeing the city, even as he's this worn-out picture of a man struggling at the end, hitting rock bottom, God is providing for this man all kinds of help and encouragement because he puts feet to his prayers. He doesn't just pray and resign himself. And as it happens, one suspects God makes it happen, Hushai arrives back at Jerusalem just as Absalom arrived there, in other words, just in time for David's ruse to work. Since Hushai's story was that he did not go with David but was defecting to Absalom. His presence in Jerusalem was necessary to corroborate his story. If Hushai had arrived after Absalom, it would have looked suspicious. And so now people are in place for something in the future that's going to happen. And so here we are in this text seeing David experiencing exile. Exile, that is being cut off and removed from the presence of God, the ark, the place of worship, ultimately the temple. And so David is cut off. He's gone. He's away. And just as he had experienced exile due to the murderous intentions of Saul, now again due to Absalom's coup, he again experiences exile. Later on in Israel's story, we know the division of the Israelite kingdom into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom will happen. The northern kingdom of Israel is eventually exiled by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah is exiled to Babylon. And the Babylonian community authorized Cyrus of Persia and then returns to the land leaders such as Shazbazar, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The theme of exile resonates in many ways with the state of the church today, which has been appropriated by many scholars as a helpful analogy of reflection of the relationship of the church to postmodern culture that we find in the West. We, in 2022, live in a post-Christian, postmodern culture. And post-modernism is the philosophy driving why you see all these changes being made to things like gender, sex, all of the stuff that's up in the news every day. That's the fruit of post-modernism. And so there was a time in our country in which Christianity and the ethics of the Judeo-Christian world shaped our culture in such a way that laws were passed, things were done that resonated, at least with that. I'm not saying America was a Christian nation. I'm not saying that. But Christian ethics had a huge influence on the formation of that country, and now it's changing. And we ourselves, like David and like the northern kingdom with Assyria and like the southern kingdom with Babylon are living in exile, we are not home yet. And so we should expect in a hostile, alien, cultural context to experience some of the grief that David experienced, but also to express some of the faith that David expressed. And so the predominant temptation in a time in which we are in exile, is to assimilate with the culture, to give in, to do what culture says we have to do. And David did not do that. And so he didn't become a part of the dominant culture that Absalom was hustling in. The parallels between the theme of exile and the experience of the church today Bring into relief the importance of God's character as one who brings exiles back. We will not forever live as exiles. One day, the whole world will be his. One day, we will have a new heavens and a new earth, and everything will be transformed, and God's way and will will be the rule, and his kingdom will be the rule of the world. And so the theological perspective of God as one who brings back exiles underscores David's faith in God's character and his submission to his will. But the second thing I see about David in this passage that has a way of application for us is David has forgotten about God pretty much in the recent past his fling with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah, David had forgotten that he was God's man, a man after God's own heart, as it were, chosen and anointed by Yahweh. Now David is rock bottom, absolutely at the core, and he says to himself, let God do to me whatever he decides or seems good to him. Sadly, just like David's life, it often takes hitting rock bottom, for us to begin to submit to God and to give up our own ambition and to give our life and all of our plans over to him. Ironically, it's at such a low state that God moves on people's behalf. And you can see it. As David is at rock bottom, his socks are humbled off. His sandals are humbled off. This guy is at bottom. He has lost everything, everything. And then God begins to work. Why? Because God resists the proud. But he gives grace to who? The humble. Not people who are faking humility. That's only pride. Humility is seeing yourself as God sees you, seeing yourself as the Bible sees you, as God's Word sees you, a sinner and yet at the same time righteous because of the work of Christ in our day. David's submission to God's will displays his deep faith in Christ. But there's something else David does here. David's prayers are answered, though he's in tears, though he's despairing, David prays, and he prays for God to frustrate Ahithophel's uh, counsel, and in a fantastic to-the-moment answer to the prayer, David miraculously meets Hushai almost immediately after praying, and it's significant that this trusted advisor goes back uh, at the summit of Mount Olives where people worship God. David prayed, God answered, and therefore he now had a person at court Hushai was an answer to prayer but the final thing I want to say this morning is David's departure and the passion of Christ you know not too long ago I went to Israel and the first place we went when we came into Jerusalem was the garden of Gethsemane and Gethsemane was on the hill up the way to the Mount of Olives we did not walk to the Mount of Olives but you could see it from where we're standing. You turn around from the Garden of Gethsemane, you look back this way, everything descends into a deep valley called Kidron, and you'll hear more about Kidron Valley. We saw the place where uh, Absalom's tomb was. We saw where David resided in the city off to the right, but we saw all of these historical places where David was when all of this happened. And it just came to life for me because David is a type of whom? Christ. David is a messianic figure who points to the ultimate messianic figure. The story of David's departure from Jerusalem has significant resonance with Christ's passion in the gospel. In fact, prefiguring the passion of another anointed king centuries later, David ascends to the Mount of Olives Troubled as it were just as Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and wept He says that he sweated as it were great drops of blood in Gethsemane as he said what? Lord if you will let this cup pass from me That is the cup of judgment that was to fall upon him as the Lamb of God the sacrifice for our sins and he prayed that three times in the garden. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. And so David is in the same location, in the same place, doing the same thing as it were. Just as David's exile from Jerusalem was a spectacle wherein the anointed one was scorned and disgraced, so later the anointed one, the Lord Jesus himself, would suffer outside of the city gates outside of the city. That's where Golgotha was. By the way, where the hill of the skull was now has a bus station on it built by the Muslims, but that's exactly where Jesus was crucified. He had scorn heaped upon him. The people wept as David departed from Jerusalem. Though popular support was against him, So people would weep at Jesus' journey outside of Jerusalem carrying his cross. Though popular support was against him as they had cried for his crucifixion, just as David hoped for deliverance but submitted himself to God even if it meant death for him, Jesus would pray for his deliverance to submit to the divine will even to the point of death. Just as David's followers expressed undying loyalty and faithfulness to him, Jesus' followers also expressed fidelity to him on nearly the same exact spot in Matthew 26. Though unlike David's followers, the decept- uh, disciples would fail in their fidelity, sleeping at the time of prayer and eventually abandoning Jesus, most significantly, David's ordeal was precipitated by his own sins while Jesus suffered not for his own sins but for ours but for ours the later son of David eclipsed David in every way and truly fulfilled the role of the ideal anointed one who would deliver his people and so even in second Samuel we see the cross looming before us we see the Lord Jesus experiencing, who was innocent. David was not an innocent person. But the Lord Jesus himself, who willingly submitted himself to the most heinous and awful death any person could ever die. There is a sense in which the, the Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross was the most disfigured, uh, um, I'm searching for words here, grotesque person because he was bearing our guilt. He was bearing our shame. I mean the shame, the heaviness of that shame upon us, pressing upon his soul. no wonder he sweat as it were great drops of blood in Gethsemane, praying to the Father, recognizing what was about to happen to him and that he would be cut off from the face and favor of God in order that we could be able to live under his face of approval because of what he did for us. So you see, the coming of Jesus as a little baby at Christmas time is sweet, but it's so much more than that. He came in order to accomplish and fulfill what David never could or no man ever could. The reason we need Jesus is we cannot save ourselves. We are totally powerless to do so. But he loved us in such a way to fulfill for us all righteousness. He was sinless, innocent, perfect in every way. And yet bore in his body, Peter says, bore in his body our sins on the tree. Peter probably making an allusion to the trees in the garden. Bearing our sin. And received judgment so that you and I can be free and have a really good Christmas. (laughs) The best one ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage. It is so full of more than meets the eye. And we're so grateful that you have spoken to us today and pointed us to the only real help there is. And the only real counselor there is and that's the Lord Jesus himself so we thank you that you've spoken to us and we pray that this would find its way into our hearts especially during the season that we realize that the coming the first coming of the Lord was to be the suffering servant and the second coming of the Lord will deliver us from all the brokenness we see around us and in us. Now, fathers, we continue to worship to you, worship you today. May we give as those whose hearts rejoice and celebrate and say and express gratitude for the unspeakable gift, which is Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.